From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. We will speak with Bob Hall, Executive Director of Democracy North Carolina, about the impacts of voter suppression. After that, Nigel Austin and Egg McNeil will join us to talk about the very successful National Black Theater Festival that took place earlier this year in Winston-Salem on the public morality. Earlier this summer, the Middle District Federal Court of North Carolina heard NAACP versus McCorrie a lawsuit challenging the state's sweeping law restricting when, how, and where voters can cast their ballots. Plaintiffs in this case charge that the law is unconstitutional and discriminatory against people of color as well as low-income voters. The 2013 law eliminated same-day voter registration, cut a full week of early voting, barred voters from casting a ballot outside of their home precinct, ended straight ticket voting, and scrapped the program to pre-register high school students who would turn 18 by Election Day. It also included the nation's strictest voter ID requirement, which the state somewhat loosened a few weeks before the trial began to allow alternative forms of ID. At the time of this broadcast, the judge had not ruled on the case, but I wanted to discuss the ramifications of the law in question and how it potentially impacts voters. To discuss this with me is Bob Hall. Hall is the executive director of Democracy North Carolina. Democracy North Carolina is a nonpartisan organization that uses research, organizing, and advocacy to increase voter participation. Bob Hall, welcome to the public rally. Thank you for inviting me. At the time of this broadcast, um, the federal judge has not rendered a decision on NAACP versus McCrory. Tell us uh, what's at stake in this case. Well, there's a lot at stake. Um, it, it really will, I'm afraid, determine who can vote and who can't vote. At, at least it makes it a lot more burdensome for some folks. There are a number of provisions uh, that were changed by the General Assembly. Um, several of them are being contested in the court. And the, the chief ones are um, cutting back early voting from 17 days to 10 days, uh, cutting altogether the uh, uh, possibility of doing same-day registration during early voting. Uh, that is, if you miss the deadline to register uh, under the old law, you could show up at early voting, show identification, fill out the registration form, and vote. And it, it was a very successful um, thing for many, many people. Another piece that they're eliminating is the um, on election day, if you happen to go to the wrong precinct in your county, uh, because it's where your school goes to, your kids go to school or, or near where you work, uh, you could cast a provisional ballot, and most of that ballot would count. The items that were on the ballot back in your home precinct would would all count. Those are some of the things that are being eliminated. And and since you since you briefly touched on those, um, you know, a, a lot of people hear these provisions on a very cursory level. Um, very easy to, for some to assume. Well, that doesn't affect me. I don't see the problem. So, what I'd like to do is take you through each one of those you just mentioned, and just really take some time as as much as you want and explain why these things are problematic. Let, let's start with uh, the reduction of um, early voting from 17 to 10 days. Why is that problematic? Well, um, 
you know, election day is on a Tuesday, it, and it, a lot of people work. Uh, they're getting their kids off to school, and then they are going off to work, uh, and they're coming back, and they're trying to take care of their family. Tuesday is an election day because of some, you know, centuries ago is when it started, and farmers would come in from the county uh, and to the city to vote and so on. It, it, it's just a, it's an old thing nowadays. Tuesday is a very in, inconvenient time. So we added early voting. Um, by cutting it this way, you're you're actually eliminating weekend. You know, when you go from 17 to 10 days, you're eliminating a whole week. Uh, weekend opportunities are when a lot of people want to vote. Early voting has become very popular. More than half the voters in both 2008 and 2012 voted early. So it, it's very popular. And now uh, they're they're getting jammed up to have to you know all stand in lines um, during this ten day period. How about um, the elimination of automatic registration for sixteen and seventeen year olds? Why is that problematic? Well, and it, this was something that was passed with bipartisan support that allows um, kids, teenagers that are sixteen and seventeen, to pre-register. They can't vote any at an earlier age but they can get themselves put on the rolls. Uh, typically, kids go to the DMV when they're 16, not when they're 18. So why not let them go ahead and, and fill out the paperwork for the registration at that point and then be ready when they when they do turn 18? Similarly, uh, 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 civics in high school, a lot of them are you know, taken at that when they're 16. So it was just a, it's another way to bring more people. We've got a terrible uh, history in North Carolina of people being pushed away from voting. It goes all the way back to Jim Crow, to the Civil War, after the Civil War. The fusion, about the fusion movement? The fusion movement was our peak. I will tell you that was the high point of voter participation in North Carolina. African Americans and, and white populists organizing together, the Democrats organizing. There were three political parties. It was a very vibrant time. Uh, we had turnouts of 80% of registered voters. Uh, and then the the red shirts and the KKK and all came in, and it was all you know the Democrats at that time were the mean uh, the mean guys and, and using trickery and violence. Um, they pushed down voting, pushed away people with the literacy tests, the poll taxes, and so on, and violence. And they really got the message across that voting is not for you. Voting is for the boss man. Uh, and, uh, it, you know, it's taken generations to come out of that, that deficit. So early voting and uh, the pre-registration for teenagers were actually effective ways to help encourage people. We want to make voting more accessible. We want you to know this is your right. We want you to be first-class citizens. Kids look at a driver's license as their ticket to freedom. Why not let them recognize their vote as their ticket to first-class citizenship? Um, I, I, I want to, uh, since you mentioned it, um, I, think, I think it's also fair to point out that the Fusion Movement was, was a, a diverse coalition that was rather effective around the turn of the century. I- you are correct, yes, and especially in North Carolina. There were different ones in different states. The one that happened in North Carolina um, went on after, even after the federal government pulled away the federal troops um, in the Reconstruction. Um, but even after that, uh, and it, it was, it was African-American Lincoln Republicans because the party of Lincoln uh, and, and white agrarian uh, uh, populist, um, they organized together to elect 
the members of the General Assembly, local offices. They, they elected members to Congress, African Americans to Congress in the 1880s and 1890s. And they wrote our Constitution. Actually, the Constitution we have today, the state Constitution, is, is almost uh, exactly what they wrote uh, back then. It's what guarantees public education um, and so on. A lot of the rights, including the right to vote, are, were written into our Constitution at that time. And it's fair to say that it was the effectiveness of the fusion movement that led to those um, more violent voter suppression tactics. Yes, exactly so. There was a, a, a pushback um, that began uh, early, you know, and it, and it finally happened through violence. I mean, they they could not win. The Democrat slave master uh, leftovers and their allies used every trick in the book, but they could not win at the polls, and they did eventually resort to violence. Um, and they basically said, if you see, you know, Negroes do not vote. If you see one vote, shoot him. And and there were killings. Uh, it, I mean, it was an extremely violent period. I'm going to ask you to switch hats momentarily. In the context of uh, early voting, what was the argument against it? <laughs> well, I guess the argument that was put forward was that, uh, one, there's uh, people don't need so much convenience. Uh, voting is a is a privilege. Uh, they should be prepared and have to sacrifice a little bit. Um, and two, it costs too much money to open the these early voting sites. Uh, but the truth is that that you you are saving money by having people go early instead of opening up all these uh, precincts which have to be added. We have to add, in a, particularly in the big city, in the, from Winston to Raleigh to Charlotte, we're having to add new precincts and polling places as new uh, neighborhoods grow, um, which then have to open every single election, even when there's, like, uh, you know, the city elections that have very low turnout. Um, but the, So the studies actually show that it's easier to have, uh, cheaper to have uh, early voting. Um, and, you know, voting is a right. It's, it's not a privilege. It, it really is a right. Certainly we have responsibilities to be prepared and, and to use our franchise, but it, it's not like any other um, activity that is uh, it's a privilege. This is a fundamental right. I, again, I'm going to go back when the average person, maybe they're hearing this, they're catching it in sound bites. Explain why, and, and I understand that voter ID is not being considered in this, in the cases. Uh, the federal case right uh, this is bef- this before the court now, but why is the voter ID having a voter identification? Why is that problematic? Well, it, it's a, it, it, the biggest problem is what happens if you don't have one and you're a legitimate voter. I mean, you've been voting for years, but you don't have to have the, the exact kind of ID that they want you to show on that day. Uh, what are they going to do to that person? Are they going to make them go through extra hoops? Uh, why there has never been a justification for this, you know saying that there's a lot of people that are going in and voting under somebody else's name, and if we had made them show an ID, it would stop that problem. Well, that problem doesn't really exist. We have other safeguards. We make people give ID numbers when they register, and we verify them at that point. Um, they have made it. They've changed the law 
uh, here just a couple months ago so that if a person doesn't have one, they can vote a provisional ballot by giving their uh, last four of their social and uh, their birth date, and those can be verified. So that makes the, the ID requirement less onerous. But they're they're at 1%, 2% of the of the actual voters who don't have a driver's license. They don't need a driver's license. Uh, why do we need to make them run through a bunch of hopes um, to get an, an ID? And, you know, 1.5% of registered voters in North Carolina is 100,000 people, 100,000. And who are those people? When you say... Well, <laughs> they're, they're poorer people. They're more inclined. They're more African Americans disproportionately. They're younger, and they're women, because they were going to make the you know the names um, when they match up. You can have more problems with women having two different a name on their registration roll one way, a name on their ID in another way, of their maiden name. Um, so, yeah, there were women when they did all the matching up of current uh, people who hold driver's license and who don't. Uh, that's what what showed up. Is it's your you're almost fifty percent higher, more more likely not to have an ID if you're African American. So, hearkening uh, back to the fusion movement, um, it is primary again. Like it was Democrats then who were suppressing the vote against people more least likely to vote for them. At least in that context, I, I hear you saying the exact same is true now. The Republicans are uh, putting in these uh, laws against people that most likely would not vote Republican. That's uh, You have it exactly right. It, the, the victims are the same. The, the target are the same. Uh, the party that was uh, feeling like they had to, you know, the, the per- perpetrator is different from one party to, to the other. Um but their intent and, and their design um, is the same. And it, it both cases, you know, it's, it's abhorrent. It's anti-American. It, it should be uh, stopped, and, and we have to fight it. I also realize the justification for these laws is, is based on preventing voter fraud. How prevalent is that is your experience in North Carolina? Well, they did find two cases out of uh, over 10 years of, of people impersonating somebody, two. <laughs> so it's pretty small. 2,000? No, two. 200? No, no, two. <laughs> no, I, I know. One, two. <laughs> I know, I know. I mean, there are, there are cases where people double vote. They vote in one place, and then they go to another and vote. Sometimes it's an accident. There are cases of elderly people who vote early and don't remember that they vote and they show up. I mean, that that's easy to catch. That, this kind of stuff is easy to catch. Um, but there have been some recent cases, just, again, very small numbers here, nothing like 100,000 that I mentioned earlier about who doesn't have an ID. Um, but there are a small number of cases where people are cheating. But it, it actually the way the the biggest method of cheating is through the mail, the absentee mail-in ballot. But the irony is, is this new law that they passed with all these different restrictions? They actually made mail-in voting easier, if you can believe that. That's the, actually the method, the preferred method of of choice for cheating. But they made it easier by uh, allowing people to fill out a a, a pre uh, a completed form so that you can uh, get most of the information completed and just add in a couple 
other numbers and send it in and get ballots sent to an address. So it, I'm, I'm afraid we might see problems with that. Uh, I'm going to ask you to speculate, but why do you bl- uh, believe that um, the charge of voter fraud is so easily accepted when the numbers you just gave, um, you, you found two infractions of voter fraud or, or people who shouldn't vote, and you're disenfranchising hundreds of thousands of people. Why is it so easy to accept that you could have a solution in search of a problem? You know, that is a good question. I, I Maybe you have the answer. I, I, I don't know. I hear all kinds of things. I, I give uh, talks to different places, and I, I do hear people say, well, I know there's fraud because I saw so-and-so at the polls who I know they weren't who they said they were. And I, or I know they voted there earlier. Uh, and I asked them, you know, I press a little bit, and then it turns out, well, I think it was the same person, but I, I'm not quite sure. Or, I mean, they, you know, they, all these little things come in. And I ask him also, did you tell anybody? Did you report that? No, I didn't. Well, why? you must not have been very confident in what you actually saw. But I, I think there is either people have a poor sense of themselves in their own uh, sense that they would risk. I mean, I don't know why, but, you know, you would why you would cheat in an election. It's a felony if you cheat. So uh, why would you think people are going to be doing this that much? I, I think that a lot of this was drummed up uh, after President Obama was elected, the truth be known. Um, it, and it's very similar to what happened in the 1880s and the 1890s when they used rumors and, and fraud was the big thing. The, you know, the Negro rapist is out uh, cheating at the voting box, and they would have these cartoons that um, showed, you know, the, the, a large African-American man. Uh, I mean, it was just really repulsive, but it, it was an effective method of uh, scaring people. So I think they have been using fraud as a way to, to drum up fear, uh, which is a very primordial emotion that we all have. They tap into fear, and uh, they want to say, okay, well, we've got to protect our vote. Um how else could this guy have gotten into the White House if it wasn't for fraud? Um, now, there's some honest talk. That's really honest talk. Uh, I, mean, I mean, just to, to that point, can you provide a scenario where the existing voter suppression laws of those that turned the century did not include race? Ah, uh, can I provide? I mean, certainly, you know, women were not allowed to vote at all. Right. So. I mean that was they were systematically uh, denied the vote even then when it was African American men and white men and um, Native Americans were also denied. Um, but it, you know it, it, it's it, it's the we've we've gone from a a nation that began with this uh, white men with property mm-hmm. uh, the privilege uh, and they should control. And the control should be their right. And from that consideration of what your right is to expanding it just little by little by little, and that is, that's the, the trajectory of our nation. Well, I, I guess what uh, another way to think about what you're saying is, is it almost an attempt to make the electorate today whiter, 
more conservative? And if so, that has ramifications on who uh, who represents uh, uh, lobbyists and corporations and, and this growing uh, inequality. I mean, in America, income inequality. Where does that stop? Well, it's it, yeah, it's it's getting worse in a lot of ways. The inequality, um, and I I think the. Um, I mean, in terms of the gaps between incomes, the rich are becoming just astronomically rich. Um, and they're, by using the campaign finance system, uh, they protect uh, the special interest, the wealthy interest, protect themselves. Um, I think even beyond the vote, we as, as people that formed the new populist, the new fusion coalition, need to organize and hold our politicians accountable to deliver on better policies that do support those that, that have put them in office and, and the ordinary American, the ordinary person. Um, too often when they get in office, they listen to the lobbyists. They, they listen to the special interest who has the money to help get them reelected. They listen to these special interest PACs that are uh, bombarding the airways. It's a struggle. Uh, the vote is, is a critical tool. It's one that we still have. It is under attack. Um, we've got to use it and, and push back. Um, and then we need to also enforce and make sure that our the, those that we elect live up to their promises to us to serve the people. I mean, we, we've gone from uh, we've gone from uh, the the the, the uh, NAACP case to uh, Citizens United. Yeah. Uh, President Obama, you've got the changing demographics. I, I think we, 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 we've, we've got to include uh, Shelby County versus Holder in the, in the Supreme Court's 5-4 decision that, that essentially gutted uh, Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. Yes. The Voting Rights Act now, 50 years old, um, and I think it was, you know, it was passed August 6, uh, 50 years ago, um, and Julian Bond, bless his heart, had this uh, – phrase about how we celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights without the Voting Rights Act, hmm. um, because they did gut it, as you say. They took out a key provision. Uh, the Supreme Court uh, nullified a key provision that indicated which states, which counties have to get a, a pre-approval before they change their election practices and policies because of the history of discrimination that had happened in those districts. And the Supreme Court said that, well, the discrimination, that's a thing of the past. We don't, we, you don't need that kind of protection anymore, which is just nonsense. And, of course, immediately after that, North Carolina became the force, first state after that uh, Shelby decision to then put in place what we call the monster law uh, and to repeal same-day registration and repeal the pre-registration of teenagers we talked about and so on and cut back early voting, add in a very strict ID uh, rule and, and things that would not have uh, gotten pre-clearance under the Voting Rights Act. But because the Voting Rights Act had been eviscerated, um, they could go ahead and do it. And that, and that, in fact, they said that, you know, now we can go forward with our full bill, all of the things we want, uh, because we know the Justice Department can't do anything about it. Well, it, the Justice Department is trying to do something now. They're one of the groups that's in this court case in, in Winston. Um, so, you know, we're, we're pushing. Um, 
in, in, in your response there, I, I just thought of a, a bit of irony in that, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I believe Chief, Chief Justice Roberts, um, who didn't, who never stated that the Voting Rights Act violated the 15th Amendment, did say, made a sociological critique that times had changed. They got the Voting Rights Act, and, and so what we have now is sort of this regression back to those times that Chief Justice Roberts had so eloquently stated had changed. Did I get that right in my history? Yes. No, no, you're exactly <laughs> right. He, he basically used the sociology just for, for some reason, uh, even though actually the record in Congress that was prepared to, to reauthorize the Voting Rights Act in, I believe it was 2002 or so, um, it might have been even more recent. It, yeah. Anyway, it was in the, this century. It was using um, cases from this century of discrimination. Nevertheless, Judge Roberts said, oh, this is a thing of the past. Uh, we don't need it. And, you know, we, we have Obama in the White House, as though that is the the one, the, the, the be end and all <laughs> of everything. All our all life has been solved. So, I, yeah, it's it's ridiculous. You know, I want to go back something you said earlier, and it made me think that the Supreme Court stated, I think, in the 19th century, that they, they described the vote as a fundamental political right because it is preservative of all rights. How was it possible after America's arduous task of seeking, you know, what it called, what it defines as a more perfect union, that is taking detours uh, past slavery and denying women the right to vote, Jim Crow laws, that it could somehow enact such laws? In the 21st century, well, I, I it's there's a deep um, a deep division in our nation, uh, and fear is is at the heart of a lot of it, and 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 it it feeds the the, the racial um, fears of racism. Um, there is a, a lack of unity across race lines. There, we do need a new fusion movement it was similar to the you know the the right wing and the tea party their fear of what they saw with the election of obama um and the coming together of uh i mean they they see gay people getting married uh they you know they they do feel there is a sense that they are losing their culture and they are uh, scared and they are are out to to fight and attack and uh, it doesn't mean it doesn't matter. They're at war, so they're they feel justified in doing all kinds of things. And if that means denying the vote to a lot of people, then you know so be it. And we had a, one of the guys from the western part of this state went on television and said that as much. You know, he said, you know, if you well, if it dis, if it means they don't vote, then that's fine. Uh, that's exactly what they they do want. They want to preserve uh, an old way of life that. Is is outdated and they're not. It's not going to be easy because it's you know they're going to feel more threatened as the the next several days. It's it's really incumbent upon white people to recognize that we have to speak out. White folks need to say to other white people, um, get over it. You've got to join in a, in a rainbow coalition, my friends. This is a new country. It's actually always been a, a country of, of, of a, a melting pot and of, of many, many faces, many voices. Uh, let's join in. It's actually a lot more fun if you <laughs> join in than if you just feel paranoid all the time. 
<laughs> I don't know, man. It's, it's, it's scary to me, I will tell you. Bob Hall, I, I want to thank you for taking time with me on the public rally today. Yes, sir. I'm, I appreciate you inviting me. If I can come back another time, I'll be happy to. Well, I, I'm quite certain that um, wh- whatever, whichever way the ruling comes down, we would definitely like to hear from you and, and, and garner your thoughts on, on, on next steps one way or the other. Thank you, sir. Thank, thank you. you. That was Bob Hall, Executive Director of Democracy North Carolina. Coming up, we will discuss the National Black Theater Festival that was recently concluded in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. The National Black Theater Festival just completed its 14th annual festival in Winston-Salem. It is a biannual festival that adds an cultural esprit de corps to Winston-Salem as well as an economic jolt to the city. Estimates have it in the neighborhood of an additional 70,000 people descending on Winston-Salem, spending an estimated $1 million a day for the week-long festival. Joining me today is Nigel Alston, chair of the fundraising committee for the National Black Theater Festival, and Abe McNeil, director of communications for the city of Winston-Salem. Nigel Austin, Ebbingdale, welcome to the public rally. Thank you. Thanks very much. Well, Nigel Austin, why don't we begin with you? Um, give us some of the history of the National Black Theater Festival. Um, who are some of the key players and, um, and your role as well? Well, to um, have some history of the National Black Theater Festival, we need to know something about the North Carolina Black Repertory Company, which was founded in 1979. It's the oldest black professional theater company in the state of North Carolina. It was founded by Larry Leon, Mr. Martastic Hamlin. Uh, in 1989 was the first National Black Theater Festival here in the city. And prior to that, Larry went to a conference, I believe it was in Texas, and he was thinking about in what ways can we sustain black theater? Uh, how can we help theater continue to live and um, have a legacy? And he came up with this idea of a festival and inviting companies from across the country and international. In that first year, uh, Maya Angelo, the late Mike, Dr. Maya Angelo, agreed to assist him. Oprah Winfrey was here, a number of other celebrities. And uh, as Ed would tell you, since that time, it's been history. I mean, more than 60,000 people uh, coming to the city. There are millions of dollars that are pumped into the local economy. Uh, there are hundreds of uh, shows that are going on throughout the course of the week. People have a fantastic time. Uh, they deposit money here, they eat, they shop, and they enjoy theater. So that's sort of the genesis of uh, the festival. Well, I Emmanuel, mean, let's just pick up from there from what Nigel just said. Um, talk about the impact that the National Black Theater Festival has on the city of Winston-Salem. Well, you're talking about a multi-million dollar impact. In part, just think about the fact that um, you're talking about 3,400 room nights. Um, that's people that come into the city. They don't live here. They come into the city. They get a hotel room. Uh, many times they're driving, so uh, they're driving, they're getting gas, they're eating at a restaurant, uh, they're going to multiple shows. Uh, if, if I think in some instances they look at it and say, well, if I'm going to be in Winston-Salem for the theater festival, it shouldn't just be a go there to see one show. So, so you see multiple shows. And so you have the customers who come in to see the shows, but then you have these theater companies themselves, 30 theater companies that are coming in with all of the support team that they need. And so you have this enormous economic impact. Um, it's, it's kind of a, as much as it's that arts exposure, there is the tourism exposure of people seeing your city one time 
and then you know they discover something else. They decide, you know what, this is not a bad place to vacation, bad not a bad place to come back to. So uh, great impact in that. Well, way. I know. As speaking with you and, and, and Nigel, follow up with this also. But I know speaking to you, Ed, you you. You know, you said more than one time that it's essentially two festivals at once. It, it is. It's an interesting event uh, in the way that when I try to compare it to anything else that we do in City of Winston Salem, it's, it's really quite difficult because what you have is you have the patrons who come into town who say, you know, they're here just for the theater, and uh, and that's their that's going to be their experience. Well, they come in and and what they see is they check into the hotels and they go to the shows and they they go out to have nice dinners and, and this types of this type of thing but then you also have this other attraction that happens which is uh, local residents who want to be a part of it you know they know the history of the festival and that you know they're walking down the street and wow there goes Nigel Lawson walking down the street <laughs> you know or, or other celebrities out I've there. said that by the way myself. <laughs> That's right, yeah right. and so so they see people that they've seen in film or that they've seen in television or if they've been following in theater for a few years, they see people that they've seen coming back to Winston-Salem every other year since the 80s. And so uh, so they want to be a part of it, too. And so what we did this year, uh, we've done it for the last couple of years, but probably executed it better this year, which was to organize um, a, a festival that was local musicians coming out and performing and uh, local food trucks and uh, uh, concessionaires that come out that provide some entertainment and services to the residents who maybe aren't going to a show but still want to be a part of the festival. So it's interesting to see those two customers all happen, that, those two types of customers happening all at the same time. And to piggyback on that, there's so much going on during the course of that week. So you start off with a celebrity reception on a Sunday. Uh, you have a gala on a Monday night and a performance that night. And then from that Tuesday to Saturday, in addition to what Ed has indicated, there are performances for youth, uh, which I think in partnering with the city this year did an outstanding job, and maybe you can talk some about yeah. those numbers there, but it was just outstanding in terms of their participation, the types of activities uh, that were uh, available to them. Uh, there's a poetry jam, uh, which is outstanding and almost sells out all the time. There was some film that was going on at the same time. Uh, there was the international colloquium that was happening. There are also readings, theater readings, in addition to going to the performances. So it's really one of those things that, quite honestly, I don't know that any one person can actually take in all no. of it. You can either go to all the performances you can or go to a performance and try to go to something else. But yeah. there literally is just so much packed into yeah. that. You one can't day. consume it all. You know, you think uh, of what we did this year with the teens. We had three nights of teen activities that were culminated on Saturday night with a hip-hop group uh, or artist named K-Camp. So this is a national, uh, a national performer. <clears throat> and if you think about it from the perspective of the, the young people, there were one or two shows that they might have been interested in in the sense that the actors would have been uh, kind of in their age group and their cohort. But then three nights from 7 in the evening until 11 o'clock at night with music and, um, and, and uh, other shows. There was a fashion show that was organized by uh, Black Theater Festival, uh, some of the, the youth focus groups. And so you have this huge diversity of activities there. One of the things I think this is probably the most impressive thing about the festival to me, 
musicals, dramas, and I mean, just all across the board. And uh, you've heard, I think, and, and Nigel can speak more to this, but black theater is for everyone. I always find layers in that statement. There is the part of that statement that, yeah, it's black theater, but uh, but white people are welcome, and and all people are welcome. But then there is black theaters for everyone that I see, which is also the young, the old. Uh, you know, all across the board. I think there really is something that appeals to uh, to all. Well, all let types me just go to Nigel just on that point. Who comes to the Black Theater Festival? Everyone comes to the festival. We're, we're still working on getting more people right here in our backyard to the festival. But we have people coming from uh, internationally. For example, we had a group this year from South Africa. Uh, it was outstanding. Uh, coming from all across the country, we have a number of bus trips. So we had a group, for example, uh, we were meeting not long ago uh, from Ohio. They had a group of 50 that have been coming down for each festival, and they look forward to it and have an outstanding time. So there are multiple bus trips that are coming, people coming from uh, states from all across the country, and they're traveling internationally as well. So it, it truly is, when we say it's an international fellowship mm-hmm. and reunion of spirit, it really is that. And part of our challenge is just getting more people in our backyard who haven't either heard of it or just taken the opportunity to partake in what's going on. And, and I think Ed would agree with this. Uh, I know that it's an outstanding product. And what I know is if I can just get you in the door mm-hmm. to experience it, that you will come back. Mm-hmm. And so we've had situations like that where I've invited someone to go uh, I, I know this particular performance, I think, is something that they would enjoy. And I know if they go, which they did, that they mm-hmm. enjoyed it. So when 2017 comes around, I'm going to call and say, I don't have a free ticket for you this time. <laughs> but I know you're going to buy four or five so that, so that you can go. Yeah, you know what I've seen, too, here in the last couple of years? Um, I, I've worked in it uh, 7, 9, 11, 13, 15. Um, what I saw this year and last year was more people from Greensboro coming over. And not just coming over on the day of, but saying, you know what, this is a vacation <laughs> So they come in, they check into the hotel, and they consume the they consume uh, Black Theater Festival in that way. So it, it is. I, I think the work is. They're, they're seeing some benefits on that. More local people saying, "Okay, this is our festival. Right. Let's let's go. Let's participate." Well, and, man, let, me, let me stay with you for one second because I want you to talk to us about um, just how much did revenue did the Black Theater Festival generate for the city this year? Well. It, I don't have the the exact figures, but you can see economic impacts in the neighborhood of like seven million dollars in previous years. Where um, and visit Winston Salem is probably the best group to to really calculate that figure. They have a formula where they say, okay, this festival goes on for seven nights, and if a person is coming in town and they're staying seven nights, then and they're going to these multiple events, and so. They kind of plug it in and say, if they eat out, this is an average cost. If they're going to get gas, this is an average cost. Uh, based on surveys they've done in the past, they can say the average person is going to shop and buy these kinds of products. And so they're able to to kind of extrapolate out that figure. And and again, not being a representative from Visit Winston Salem, I don't I don't want to give a figure that. Uh, but but I would tell you that in the past, it's not been odd to hear associated with the festival seven million dollar, ten million dollar so, impact. So in the past, about seven million dollar. Uh, economic impact. I yeah. mean, were, were the numbers of people who attended lower than, than the years past? Oh, the numbers have continued to go up. Actually, the uh, 2011, 2013, and 2015, revenue has increased each year. Uh, the ticket sales have increased each year. Mm-hmm. Uh, expensive, we've been able to manage by the type of shows that we're bringing in. So the operating 
uh, revenue from that has also gone up. So the trend has been moving forward in terms of raising money, more people coming, uh, and more revenue coming in. Mm-hmm. To Ed's earlier point, when you ask about um, who is coming to the festival, so one of the things that we did this year uh, is to continue to expand on reaching out into other areas. So as an example, uh, we had a last year, or two years ago, I forget the festival isn't every year. It feels mm-hmm. like it is. <laughs> two years ago, we, we did something in Greensboro to try to attract more people to come. So this year, we focused in the triad to bring more folk from the triad. And the triad being? Triad being once the sale in Greensboro and High Point. <clears throat> so we had something more central to bring more people in to encourage more people to come. We also went to Charlotte, and we had a reception there. Uh, We did a little mini-performance there to try to attract more people from Charlotte to come here. And so now we're looking to go to, for example, Richmond, Virginia, or the Raleigh-Durham area. Some other areas are sort of branch out to introduce us to people to create that awareness. And the end result of that, as they had mentioned, is there are more people from other places Mm -hmm. in close proximity to us who are now coming and experiencing it and wanting to come back. Well, let me just stay with that for just a moment because I know Atlanta has a, a theater festival or black theater festival of sorts. Um, I know D- D.C. has similar efforts. But none of those larger cities have been able to replicate what has been going on here now for several decades. Right. Why? Uh, this is unique. It is the only national black theater festival. There are others that have tried to imitate it. And they've been unsuccessful. There are black arts festivals. They've had that in Charlotte and also uh, Atlanta. I think uh, Miami or someone in Florida attempted to do something. Part of it, I think, was Larry's vision at the time. Uh, The people who have come, the sense of being home when they come back here again. Uh, And now that Larry is no longer with us, is honoring that legacy. And uh, quite frankly, uh, it's a huge undertaking uh, that has a lot of parts and involves a lot of people in the community. And I think, and, and Ed may agree with this, our community is, I think, just a great fit for and the collaboration that goes together to actually make this happen than some other cities. So this could get lost to me in a New York or Atlanta because it's just one more thing, a big yeah. thing. This is the thing here, and people come here, and they're accessible uh, as well. Right, and I think there's, there's a couple of key, uh, key elements there. Number one, I think you got to start you have to start with the strength of the original organizer. I think Larry was a unique figure here, a strong figure, and it was clear he was a Winston-Salem man. And and so I think if you if you have things that are organized by a committee or organized by um, uh, a group, I don't know that you can always get the connection back to the community. But Larry Leon Hamlin... Uh, whether anybody argues with it or not, he was a Winston Salem man, <laughs> and there's there, there's something there's People something. Pride in this yeah, guy, man. that's right, that's right. <laughs> and so so he he was he's from here or he lived here, and I think that that um, that's a critical part. I think the other part that's critical is over the years as the festival has had various changes. I think the city has taken a greater uh, partnership role. And so at, when you have a partner like the city um, that, has, that, that goes out and says, you know what, this is a special effort. All those flowers that line the streets, purple. Purple and black are the colors of the festival. They're going to be purple. We're going to make sure that your streets are clean. We're going to make sure that we're putting our very best foot forward. And so 
So that's one level of support. When you see a partner like the city comes along and begins to do those things to support it, that's great. But then you also see the independent business owner that uh, that you can go to and say, hey, how was your uh, – um, you guys looking forward to the festival? Absolutely. We know that it's going to extend our day. We know that it's going to be a lot of people from outside of the area. So you have the support down to that business level. And then, of course, you have the support of, of the community as individuals who look at it and say, that's our festival, we're going. One, one of the things that my team has the, the opportunity to do is to uh, put together a, uh, a volunteer corps, call it a little army. Uh, but when we send out the call to look for volunteers, it's a really short time frame. We turn people away because, you know, folks want to be a part of it. And, and so there's, I think there's that combination, the strength of the, the person that introduced it, the right partner, um, and then getting the support down to the individual level is what's made it such a bedrock of Winston-Salem. You know, it's a, it's a personal thing. In 1989, I've been a supporter. Uh, since the company itself started, I've known uh, Larry and Sylvia for all that time. Uh, the first year of the festival was 1989. I didn't know what to expect about the festival. My wife and I actually had vacation planned that week of the festival, so we didn't attend. When we came back and I looked in the paper and saw about all this that happened, what I said then was, we will be taking vacation here from now on every other year. Mm-hmm. So since 91, I volunteered. 93, I was on the fundraising committee and hadn't been involved with it since that time. So to Ed's point is, it's a personal thing that you really become involved in. And another part of it, Byron, I think that's very important that a lot of people may not know is just Larry's story. There's just a story that Larry came back home uh, due to um, a family situation. He borrowed $1,000 from his father, and he started what was called the Living Room Theater. So all of this that we see now that brings in 60,000 people, more than $10 million in economic impact, hundreds or thousands of volunteers, activities all over the city, started with a loan from his father, and he would take four to eight people and go into your living room. People would invite him to the living room, and they would perform some classic. And from that, that led to uh, being funded by the Arts Council. And then that led to being the first professional black theater company in North Carolina, and now the oldest. And that led to talking to Maya Angelou, who said yes, and who brought over Winfrey and others. And now, 14 festivals later, people are still talking about mm-hmm. it. So I think with that history and with that story, it's really hard for anyone else to, to replicate yeah. what we're doing here. You just can't do it. Yeah. Well, N- Nigel, let me just stay with that, because in the culture that we live in, it's quite possible uh, to hear... Uh, National Black Theater Festival, and that just be perceived this ex- is something exclusive uh, to black people. But as I've heard you say, I've heard Ed say, even on this broadcast, that's not the case. So if you could speak to that, if you could. Well, as Ed indicated, black theater is for everyone. So if you just look at the performances this year, there were one-person performances. Uh, there were large company performances. Uh, there were musicals. There was a soul crooners from Florida. There's Jackie Taylor, who comes from... Uh, Chicago, who brings uh, uh, performance uh, each festival, and it's usually some specific star. It was Teddy Pendergrass or someone like that, for example. Uh, they're dramatic performances. Ted Lange, who was on the Love Boat, has mm-hmm. been here a number of times and has some very historical performances that are here. So we say black theater is for everyone because it is educational and it's informative. The history is African-American or black. 
but in terms of what's being talked about, touches everyone. Uh, and when you come out of it, I think you would have a sense of understanding something maybe that you did not have, understand, becoming more aware, and in the process, you're being entertained and you enjoy it. And so we, I think another part of it, and it may speak to this as well, is that the diverse groups that actually come together as a result of this and then the conversation that happens as a result of people coming together is another part of it. You don't buy a ticket for that, but that's sort of a byproduct yeah. of it. Yeah, yeah. You know, we've, we've seen uh, it's one of those fun things that you walk into a restaurant and it's night of, of the festival and you'll see people talking about the shows and you see the excitement of it and you see this connection that builds with it. And it's, it's a part of what I think makes it special here. Uh, and just a, a quick flashback to an earlier point is we're a small enough community that that's really big time. That's big time. There is no question that when the festival comes into town, it's what's happening in town. So. Talking with Nigel Austin and Ed McNeil about the National Black Theater Festival, you know, uh, I had uh, the fortune of going on your website the other day, and I saw that there's already a countdown um, for the next two years. I mean, to, you know, so I already have the date. They're July 31st, uh, August 5th, 2017. And, and so how much planning actually goes into that one week? Well, to give you a sense of it, we started uh, probably November or December of last year for this year. That was a process of the committee coming together, the subcommittees, what is our goal going to be this year, how are we going to be organized, and then working. Uh, that ended around June, and, and there's a lot involved in that. So it's working with the city, it's what's happening with the mm -hmm. youth, it's sponsors, it's contributors, it's in kind. This year, so the festival was over. Uh, in the first week in August, uh, about three weeks later, the fundraising committee came back together. We did a survey to get feedback. How was your experience? Uh, what would you suggest we improve? What should we stop, et cetera? We discussed it uh, just um, a week or so ago. We've had a follow-up meeting to that to say we want to raise our sites higher for 2017. So the fundraising goal is about a quarter of a million dollars more. So the frame was what do we need to do to raise this amount of money and so we started talking about all these ideas and all these thoughts. And one of the different things we're going to be doing uh, leading into the next one is, after the second meeting, is we're going to meet quarterly next year <clears throat> so that we can start the plan and start executing the plan. And then monthly beginning in January 2017. So the work, you know, we, we stopped in June. We celebrated. We had the festival. We came together to say, let's look to see how we did and what we did. Now we need to get together to talk about executing this and uh, on January, I forget the date now, we've already said it, we'll have our first quarterly meeting mm -hmm. and we start working. So there's a lot going on. Well, it's kind of like speaking, Byron. You know, you, you speak. You preach sometimes and sometimes you talk. <laughs> <laughs> and what people don't know is they don't know the preparation that happened months, hours, weeks before mm -hmm. getting to that point in terms of what you see that happens in the community. Right. There's a lot that goes uh, that's behind it. It's interesting. Look, I'm, I'm listening to your calendar, and I'm thinking about what we're doing. So for us, the planning for Festival 2015 started in May of 2014 as we were envisioning what we were doing to entertain youth uh, in the downtown area. This year, what we did was um, we did a um, – a DJ stage up at the fairgrounds and did prizes and different competitions and such. So we produced that. We thought of it in May. We executed it June through August. 
we brought in Ms. Hamlin to say this is what we're doing this year. We believe that this can be a good plan for coming forward in 15. She came out to one of the events. And then in 15 in May, we started that same activity up. But from day one, we told the teens, this same place where you're coming all summer is exactly where we're going to be for Black Theater Festival. We started putting posters up. We put banners up. Um, we even uh, released a, um, uh, um, a text competition just to let young people know that, hey, we're going to give away prizes on that night to get them engaged. So, And then since that time, the festival obviously is in August this year, but we got together in September and said, okay, things went really well. Planning to have the youth activities at the Winston-Salem Fairgrounds is a good plan. Let's go ahead and set our sights for that for 2016. So 2016, we'll have our youth activities up there again, thinking about what happens for Black Theater Festival in 17. You know, for someone um, who may be unfamiliar uh, with the National Black Theater Festival prior to this broadcast, how can they get prepared, get informed for 2017? Well, one, they can go to the website, which is ncblackrep, ncblackreprep.org, or they can call 336-723-2266. Okay. Uh, that is the Black Rep office, so they can find out more about it. Uh, get more details about it, the specific dates, and uh, they can volunteer. They become a part of the Martastic Society or in the North Carolina Black Repertory Company Theater Guild. Um, Stand with you, Nigel. Um, if you had to just sum it up, just condense it to just a single statement, what makes the Black Theater Festival successful? People, relationships, outstanding performances, entertainment, great time. All those things wrapped up in the one is what uh, makes it great. It's a great community. It's a great time. It's a great fellowship. It's an outstanding spirit. Um, and it's, uh, as Larry would say, it's marvtastic. Ed, from the city's perspective? Um, it, it's being a good partner. I think it's, you know, when you, you look at that, you look at the sponsorship list of the folks that support Black Theater Festival and, and you see some folks that are there all the time that have been there as long as I've watched. You see the support that is uh, new people that come alongside and say, wow, we believe in what you all are doing and they support it. And from the city side, as I have been involved, you know, 7, 9, 11, 13, 15, watching how we become better partners, being more engaged. This was the first time that the city invested in a national act to come and entertain young people to give them the opportunity also to feel Black Theater Festival. And so it, it's it's about relationships, being good partners. Uh, I think very much that's that's what it's about. Well, it's definitely um, – and this was uh, my first uh, experience this year, and it, it definitely adds – and a spree de corps to the city, and and I'm I'm already looking forward to uh, 2017. I didn't I didn't know what I was getting into. I said, are you going to be around with Black National Black Theater Festival? I started hearing that conversation mm -hmm. in January. I'm mm -hmm. like, well, what is it? And so uh, I got my first taste, and can't wait till 2017. Nigel Austin, Ed McNeil, thank you so much for being on the Public Morality. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up, my closing remarks. Next time on The Public Morality, author Professor Michael Long will talk about the life and legacy of Bayard Rustin. After that, 
50 years later, where does the Voting Rights Act go from here? Michelle Jawanda of the Center for American Progress will join us to answer that question next time on The Public Morality. In the 19th century, the Supreme Court stated voting was a fundamental political right because it is preservative of all rights. If that was true in the 19th century when the nation was still struggling with the notion of we the people, it must hold true for a more enlightened 21st century. But one would know that judging by the draconian laws that have been put in place to effectively suppress the vote. These laws harken back to a day when people were beaten and killed for the opportunity to express the fundamental right to vote. No American, regardless of their political orthodoxy, should favor a law that is tantamount to a solution in search of a problem. While voting irregularities have been shown to be minuscule, the number of individuals potentially disenfranchised by these laws is tragic. Politics be damned. Voter suppression is not the path toward a more perfect union. That's our show for today. The Public Morality is produced by WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.